Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Eunice. Thanks for joining us. That's right. We are diving into Chapter 15. It's a little bit longer, uh, so we're excited about that. And remember that Miguel just encountered a motorcycle club who was very kind to him because he had fallen down on his motorcycle as he was cut off in traffic, uh, turning into a gas station. So they were very kind to him and supported him, and he feels really good about himself as he's leaving Tucumcari on his way through Texas. Right? We're not going to find any Spanish in this chapter. Nope. <laughs> We're in Texas. <laughs> We're Tex-Mex now. Right. All right. Um, do you have anything you wanted to say before we get started? No, I like listening to you tell me my own story. All right. Well, chapter 15 is called Sheriff's Deputy. This up just a little bit so you can hear me really good. Mm -hmm. Okay. There is peaceful solitude in riding a motorcycle over long distances. I become one with the BSA and the environment that surrounds me, mentally isolating myself from everything except the road in front of me and riding on autopilot, allowing my subconscious to expand into a meditative state. The goggles I'm wearing sport rims that limit my peripheral vision. I can only see one side or the other if I turn my head in that direction. I also have small wads of cotton stuffed in my ears to reduce the effects of the cold and noise of the wind. I'm shocked into full consciousness when a well-marked sheriff's vehicle drives up from behind me into the lane for oncoming traffic, his light flashing and siren blaring. As if that isn't enough, his Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver is in his hand and he is gesturing with it to indicate he wants me to pull over to the side of the road right now. I release my grip on the throttle, start slowing down, and look for an amenable place to pull over. He slows down as well, in time enough to change lanes and avoid another vehicle driving in the opposite direction. Coming to a complete stop, I pull my goggles up over the bill of my cap and take off my gloves. I start to reach into the inside of my jacket to retrieve my motorcycle license, then realize that is probably a bad idea. No need to make this deputy even more suspicious of me. I turn over my left shoulder in time enough to see him exiting his vehicle with a peak of temper, slamming the car door. He returns his sidearm to its holster as he is walking toward me in long, quick strides. He arrives just as I am pulling the cotton from my ears. He shouts at me in what I believe is a more angry voice than what is necessary for the situation. I'm still in Zen mode, I suppose. What kind of crazy are you, cowboy? Not quite understanding what he is asking, I respond, excuse me? I said, what the hell do you think you're doing? 
I don't think that's what he said the first time, but I am sure he is looking for some kind of answer. So I say as respectfully as I can, I'm just riding my motorcycle, sir. His bushy black eyebrows and matching mustache pucker in frustration as his face grows redder than seems healthy for a middle-aged man with his portly physique. I can see that, but where you come from, aren't motorcycle riders supposed to obey the law? In this case, the speed limit on this farm-to-market road in Garza County in the great state of Texas? Well, sir, I was doing 55 and what I believe to be a 55-mile-per-hour speed limit zone. What I failed to mention to him is that the BSA speedometer, having come from our brothers in the United Kingdom, is calibrated in kilometers per hour, and it requires running a constant calculation in my head to convert kilometers per hour to miles per hour so I may very well have been exceeding the speed limit. He inhales deeply, releasing built-up tension with an outward whoosh, sending a wave of barbecue sauce and onion breath my way. How old are you, boy? Fifteen. Your license plate says that you're coming from New Mexico. What are you doing in Texas? I'm riding for New Orleans. What's in New Orleans? Mardi Gras. I feel like he and I have reached some sort of inflection point. He's asking good questions, and I'm giving him good answers. Good in that I know they are honest, and I'm starting to feel like he knows they are honest. I notice the engraved brass plate over his right pocket says, Lufkin. Give me your driver's license and registration, orders Deputy Lufkin. I take them both out of the inside pocket of my jacket and hand them to him. Like any officer performing his due diligence, he examines them both carefully then looks up at me and says, I suppose you know these two don't match. Yes, sir, I know that, and I can explain if you give me a chance. He waves the driver's license and registration, gesturing permission to continue with my story. I tell him that the motorcycle belongs to my Uncle Carlos, and he loaned it to me to ride to New Orleans. How do your parents feel about that, he asks. Well, my dad died several years ago, and my mom is okay with it. Okay, because she doesn't know. And I'm not impeding her appointments and club meetings. I unzip one of the side pockets on my jacket, pull out the slip of paper tucked inside, and hand it to him. That's my uncle's phone number. You can call him if you like. He takes it from me, then looks up and around, as if searching, in what seems to be his version of improvisational sarcasm, for a phone booth to make the call. Looking at me, he admonishes, Get off your bike and set your butt against the front of my car. I don't want you taken off on me. I dismount, park the BSA on the kickstand, and follow him back to his car to lean against it. The heat from the engine compartment feels good. With my license, registration, and my uncle's phone number in hand, the deputy climbs back into his car and reaches for the microphone on his official radio. I can't actually hear the conversation but I imagine he's asking someone to check into the national criminal files to see what kind of record I might have. <laughs> the longer I sit, the more dramatic the story in my mind becomes. I realize I've gone too far when I visualize grabbing the shotgun out of the rack in his car to start a shootout with a half dozen Texas Rangers. Thankfully, he exits his vehicle and strides back toward me before the drama in my head involves any bloodshed. <laughs> he starts talking as he exits the car but the gentle Texas wind blows away some of his words before they reach me. 
Doesn't check out, son. I had our secretary call the number you gave me, but there was no answer. He's staring at me, but his dark glasses hide his eyes, so I have no idea what he's thinking. Finally, he says, I think you ought to come with me. Get in the back seat there. Surprised by the turn of events, I blurt out, wait, you can't do that. I haven't done anything. Still holding the registration, my license, and my uncle's phone number in his left hand and tapping them on the inside of his right hand in a regular cadence, he looks up at me and confides, you know, I got a boy about your age. He plays football on the JV team at the high school. I don't know what his mama would think about him getting on a motorcycle and heading to New Orleans. I think she'd have a hissy fit if that ever happened. How would you feel about it? I test. He doesn't answer my question in words, but his face tells me, if boys don't learn, men won't know. Then turning, he says, go on, get in the car. What about my bike? I shout. I got a truck coming out to pick it up. He'll be here in just a bit. Worried about my stuff, I tell him, look, Sheriff, everything I own right now is on that bike. That bike belongs to my Uncle Carlos, and if I don't bring that bike back to him, he's going to skin me alive. It seems more the more agitated I get, the more calm and in control he becomes. All right, get in the car. We'll wait for the truck and then follow them back to town after they, after they load the bike up. Fine. I shove my anger down inside, once again thwarted by an adult telling me what to do and counting the minutes I'm wasting here in the middle of nowhere, Texas, instead of riding for New Orleans. I slide into the back seat of the deputy's vehicle. For the next 10 minutes, Deputy Lufkin putters around inside the car, rambling about Texas high school football from the time he played to the present and his son's team. They take their high school football seriously here in Texas. The truck arrives a few minutes later, and two greasy, friendly gas station types load the BSA up onto the flatbed and tie it down. We follow them back into town and pull up in front of a brick building with a large wooden sign carved with the words, Garza County Sheriff's Office. The truck driver rolls down his window and asks, What do you want me to do with it, deputy? Lock it up in the Connex out back. Don't be messing with it. The trucker gives him an offhanded salute and replies, Yes, sir. We'll add it to your tab. I know you will. He turns over the front seat and says, Come on, boy. Let's get you inside and see if we can figure this thing out. Once inside, he points in the direction of a middle-aged woman with auburn hair done up in a beehive behind a desk stacked with folders. That there is Maybelle. She runs things around here. Pleased to meet you, ma'am. I say in the direction of the folders. She pops her head up over the top, looks over her horn-rimmed glasses, and says, Likewise, I'm sure. Are you the boy coming through on your motorcycle from New Mexico? Yes, ma'am. I'm on my way to New Orleans, I reply. Well, goodness gracious me, aren't you just a bit too young for something like that? What does your mama and daddy say about it? Before I answer, Deputy Lufkin tells her, his daddy's passed on, and his mom is okay with it, according to him, pointing his thumb in my direction. Maybelle points to a set of official-looking chairs against the wall and says, You go help yourself to soda pop from the cooler over there and take a seat. I'll try calling your uncle again in a little bit. Taking advantage of the opportunity, I grab a Dr. Pepper out of the cooler, open it, and drink down about half, 
drowning my frustration and impatience with the sweet bubbly refreshment. They continue to work, she on the folders, he on some paperwork. I imagine it's related to me. I use this delay to stretch my back and legs, use the men's room, and examine the Texas map hanging in a frame on the wall. About a half hour later, Maybelle looks at her wristwatch and says, Let's try him again. What's your uncle's last name? Delgado, I reply as I turn back to her with hope. Delgado, she repeats. We have a Delgado family ranch not far from where the deputy stopped you. You might could give them a visit. Probably related somehow. Probably, I reply as I calculate the number of hours I have remaining to reach New Orleans in time for Mardi Gras. She picks up the slip of paper with my uncle's number written on it and dials. A few seconds pass and she says, Mr. Delgado, Mr. Carlos Delgado. From here on to the end of the call, I hear only her side of the conversation, interspersed with pauses. It goes like this. Yes, sir. My name is Maybelle Jackson, and I'm the office administrator for the Garza County Sheriff's Office. Pause. Texas. Garza County, Texas. Yes, sir. The reason I'm calling today is we have a young man in our office. His name is Michael Eunice. He claims he's your nephew and that you loaned him the motorcycle he's riding. Pause. No, sir. He is not under arrest and he ain't committed no crime. She looks up at Deputy Lufkin and he confirms it with a nod. We just want to make certain that his family knew what was going on with him. Pause. Yes. Thank you, sir. We appreciate your time. Would you like to talk to him? Pause. All right, then. I'll tell him. Thank you again, and sorry for the trouble. Pause. You too. Bye now. Maybelle hangs up the phone, looks at me, then at Lufkin, and says, his story checks out, crazy as it sounds. Then she looks back at me and says, your uncle says to mind the speed limit. Lufkin stands up and puts on his straw Stetson and his big dark glasses. He pulls a key ring off a peg on the wall. Come with me, son. He steps out the back door. I get up, set my empty soda pop bottle in a wooden crate next to the cooler, wave goodbye in the direction of Maybelle Jackson and say, Thank you, ma'am. Have a good day. You're welcome, she replies. Y'all be careful out there, you hear? By the time the last of her words reach me, I'm already out the door and it has closed behind me. I follow Lufkin out back to a red paint over rust colored Connex. He looks for a key on the ring about as big as the lock on the Connex, opens it, and stands aside to let me go in. There the BSA sits, waiting for me, ready to go. I roll her back out the door and set her on the kickstand. I gear up while Lufkin stands watching. Then, throwing a leg over the bike, I go through the starting routine. As usual, three kicks brings her to life. I give the throttle a little blip to let her know everything is okay and will soon be back on the road. Lufkin hands my papers back to me and instructs, You best be on your way, boy. I take them back, returning them to the inside pocket of my jacket and agree. I will. Thank you. One last thing? What's that, son? Could I trouble you for a Texas road map? I think I got one of those. He walks back to the office and returns with a folded road map and hands it to me. That's fresh off the press. You should do right by it. I stuff it inside my jacket. In a somber tone, he says, 
You ride safe, you hear? I don't want to see you splattered all over one of the farm-to-market roads in Garza County. I've seen enough of those for one lifetime. You get me? I nod my head and answer, yes, sir. I put my goggles back in place, stuff the cotton back in my ears, and ride off at a reasonable pace. In the mirror, I can see him take off his straw stetson, wipe the inside with his handkerchief, put it back on, and return to his office. For a few miles down the road, I think about Deputy Lufkin and his son, and how lucky they are to have one another. I've got about 48 hours to get to Mardi Gras. Uh, first of all, let me compliment you on your Maybell Jackson. <laughs> that sounds just like Yeah? Yeah, yeah I can do a, a Southern accent. <clears throat> kind of Texan. Well, it's, and there's a Texas twang, too. Yeah. It, uh, it's not quite Southern, but they do have their own way of talking. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, well, I, uh, you know, examined the theme of this chapter, and we really wanted to pull out that the deputy was more concerned about you than he was angry, mm -hmm. but he covered up his concern with that anger, that mm -hmm. show of frustration and mm -hmm. anger and what the hell are you doing and, you know, uh, and then at the end, we we hear the the reason why mm -hmm. he was so concerned and so upset. You know, he's seen enough accidents in his time and and uh, wasted life, most likely. That uh, you know, it gets to you. It's like he gets protective because he talked about his son, who was the same age. And so, tell me, how much of this was true? Uh. Pretty much all of it. Uh, there are some minor things. I, I remember, for example, the the map on the wall in a frame and asked for another one. I remember uh, Maybelle Jackson and her beehive. And uh, for the most part, it was uh, accurately represented. And I think what we captured as we were writing it was his concern. And, uh, you know, I asked him how uh, he would feel if his son would do that. And he was more like, if, if boys don't, you know, if boys don't explore or something like that, uh, men won't know, you know. If boys don't, don't find learn. out, if they don't learn, men won't know. Yeah. And uh, the impression given that he would have been open to his son doing something like that. I didn't get, I didn't believe that for a minute. He struck me as the kind of man that would have a long and strong conversation about his son, even riding a motorcycle. And my experience has been when you meet people who have the their own experiences of having scraped motorcycle riders off the highway, uh, they get pretty adamant about the value of a motorcycle mm -hmm. and how much damage it can be done can be done to the individual and to that individual's family. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been really surprised if his son had come up to him and said, I'm going to take a ride on the motorcycle, if, if they had one. I probably didn't even have one. Uh, to New Orleans, I don't, he, he wouldn't let him go. There's, he yeah. would, he would and yet he'll let him play football, which is also very dangerous. It, it is. You know, we know now how much damage can <laughs> right. be done uh, to football players, especially in those days when they didn't have quite the amount of protection that they have today. Mm -hmm. A lot of the protection that comes for football players today is the result of the bad experiences of having watched football players 
you know, become injured and spend the rest of their lives suffering with those variety of injuries, including the brain damage type injuries that came. And we didn't really think about until we lost that one player in college and that one doctor, and I'm, I wish I could remember the name, uh, started doing the research yeah. to, that indicated that college football players get more brain damage than a lot of boxers. Mm. And, um, and uh, so I, I, I really think... A, he didn't think football was that dangerous. Yeah. B, his son wouldn't have ever gotten on a motorcycle and headed off to New Orleans. That wouldn't have happened <laughs> on his watch. Yeah. Uh, and he might have found other ways to convince his son that there are other kinds of adventures that he could learn from that didn't involve riding a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. you, I, get, I get the real sense that he was anti-motorcycle. So. so when... Let's transfer this from you being the young one to you being the adult mentor in this situation or the father. Uh -huh. um, you're, you had boys and girls uh, who were somewhat adventurous. And did they ever want to – I know Jason rides a motorcycle. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about that? So uh, when, when he was old enough to ask for uh, a motorcycle, I had one. I was still writing at that time. And uh, he asked me to teach him, mm -hmm. you know, can I learn how to ride a motorcycle? And this at the and time. And how old was he about? So let me see. Was that would have been. Uh, let me, I'm going to have to do some calculations. So 72, <laughs> uh, 92. So he was uh, college age. Oh, okay. So he wasn't a teenager. Okay. And the, what intrigued him about it was the motorcycle that I owned at that time was a uh, Buell motorcycle. And Buell was a unique manufactured motor motorcycle. It was uh, designed uh, by an engineer whose name was Eric Buell. And what he wanted was a cafe racer that used a Harley Davidson engine. Mm. And that was just right up my alley. In the late 70s, I owned something called the Harley Davidson XLCR. And that was Harley Davidson's attempt uh, at building a British style cafe racer. And uh, they built a thousand of them and they didn't, they didn't sell very well. Mm -hmm. It was just not that Harley Davidson thing. They mm -hmm. built it on the, on the Sportster, uh, the smaller of the Harley Davidson's Sportster engine and chassis. And it was designed by uh, the younger, the youngest of the brothers. And they made it the, thing was, they said, you can build a thousand of them if they sell and they sell well, we'll make more. They didn't sell well. And as a matter of fact, the one that I bought was one of the last holdovers. By this time, it was probably two years old. And it was in a, in a bike shop in El Paso, Texas. And the price had just progressively fallen. I got it for 1700 bucks, which was an amazing price at the time. And I uh, hitchhiked down there and uh, bought that. So uh, this was when Jason and Sean were still kids, you know. Really? You yeah. went down, you hitchhiked down, down to El Paso when you had kids? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because I didn't have a truck. I didn't have a way to get it back. So mm -hmm. my only choice was to uh, hitchhike down there and then uh, ride the bike back mm -hmm. at, at speeds so you didn't burn up the engine. Mm -hmm. So it had this terrible reputation, and I had it for, I don't know, 10 years. Hmm. Um, 
And then the Buell came out. And by this time, the uh, XLCR had become a, uh, a valuable piece of Harley Davidson's history. You know, yeah, it was like a collector's thing. So I actually made money on it and I mm. made enough to pay cash for the Buell, um, was it the SR9? I think it was. And that's when Jason, when Jason saw this motorcycle, he had never shown uh, any interest. And, it, and it's funny because Jason has always shown, like he was an avid cyclist. Mm -hmm. uh, he would go with me on the WNOD trail all the time. Uh, but he never showed an interest in the motorcycles. And I'm not sure why that was. Uh, he had a lot of other interests of his own, you know, with his friends. Uh, but when, when the SR9 came into our lives, it my life, uh, he showed an interest. Yeah. And I was kind of worried because he picked a motorcycle it wasn't a starter motorcycle. You know, I would have preferred he got something like a, a 250 dirt bike, something like that, where, you know, it's easier to teach them on and it doesn't have a top speed of 140 miles an hour. Um, but he did. And so we started out small. I uh, borrowed a friend's smaller motorcycle and got him riding with me. We got his license. He passed his test. And since then, he's ridden motorcycles. He's ridden motorcycles as much as I have, if not more. He owns one right now. It's that uh, uh, Honda version of a, a large Harley Davidson. It's not a sport bike. It's a cruiser is what they, the model. And he still owns it, still rides it. So uh, he's he's pretty avid about his stuff and rides it everywhere he likes riding. You know, he'll, his, he enjoys the occasional trip from Albuquerque to Santa Fe and back, you know, go to Santa Fe to get a chili cheeseburger, a lot of burger, and then right back. Mm -hmm. So I would call him an avid motorcyclist. Carl never showed any interest, none whatsoever. He was a car, he still is a car guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he owns one of the higher end performance Audis, but he's always been that kind of car guy. Vince, um, he did not, he was also a car guy, didn't show any interest in motorcycles. The girls, the only one that showed, well, uh, Ryan dated a guy who had a sport bike that I didn't care for. Yeah. Not the sport bike, the guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I broke that up. And But she had ridden on it. Toby showed an interest and learned how to ride. Mm. She does know how to ride a motorcycle. But now that she's a mama, that's off the list of things that she gets to do. Yeah. So, uh, but they all are um, what I would call avid cyclists. Mm -hmm. They, they, you know, not that they go on any more of the, I could count on them for doing a 20, 20 25 mile ride in a day um, or a ride down to DC and back, that kind of thing. So they're all avid cyclists. Jason is an avid motorcyclist and Toby is a motorcyclist, but not avid. You know, yeah. if, if she had to get on a motorcycle or if one of her sons challenged her like, mm. mom, you can't ride a motorcycle, she would she would ride a motorcycle. Maybe someday. Not yeah. while you have babies. Yeah, not while you that's, have babies. That's, so. that's kind of a mama thing. Yeah. I remember when I was pregnant with my first and I was driving the car and it just suddenly went boom in my brain. <gasps> I'm carrying a baby. I have to be super careful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you, you, you know, you get that. It's a, a hormonal reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, I am responsible for another life here. I have got to be very, yeah. very safe and careful. So probably not until they're teenagers would she get on another motorcycle. Well, uh, and my motorcycling uh, stopped was after an accident. 
I had a, I was in Fairfax County, uh, all those type A personalities. There was a woman who was smoking a cigarette, drinking a cup of coffee, and trying to make a note in her calendar, her book calendar, and made a left turn in front of me. And uh, so doing everything except paying attention to it, what pretty much driving. everything. Never did notice the cyclist. The my bike hit uh, her the front end the side of her car. I went over the hood, kind of rolled over. I, no injuries, uh, but the SR9 had a couple of problems with it, and that is one of the things was that it carried the um, gas in the frame and the oil in the swing arm, and so they were automatically very delicate. So if you put a scratch in one of them, uh, the rule was you couldn't trust to hold your gas or oil anymore. Mm -hmm. Not not that that was necessarily true. So the only thing that you could do is replace them. Mm -hmm. You had to replace them. And then by this time, I could strip down that bike in my sleep if I had to. And I could have done it, but between the two of them, it was like $1,800. And I thought, oh, okay, that's maybe it's time to stop. Yeah. <laughs> you had how many kids by then? This was probably in like right around 2000. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had all the kids that we were going to have, Six. excluding the, the foster babies. Mm -hmm. And that would have made me 51. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Took you a little longer to get to that. Oh, I've got, I've yeah. got babies uh, to yeah. take care of yeah. stage. Um, yeah. So what's... What's your favorite part of the story? What and why? My my favorite part of the story was encountering something that I had no familiarity with, and that is um, uh, West Texas uh, culture, mm. uh, from the accents to the behaviors to the casualness to the fact that it was a sheriff's office that was run by Maybelle Jackson, and he meant it. You know, she runs things around here. Uh, never did meet the sheriff, but it was a very different culture. It was very, it seemed to me just a little bit more refined um, in some ways. Uh, there was a lot, there seemed to be more formality than you would have expected uh, from a small town in Texas. Sort of a Southern hospitality. Yeah, I, I guess that's it. I guess that's a good way to describe it. Plus at the time, and I, I had ridden through Lufkin on my way through uh, uh, on 66 and not Lufkin, I'm sorry. Um, that's Garza County, but I forgot the town's name. We did give the sheriff uh, the name of a town in Texas. I, it wasn't the same one, though. Um, I don't remember the name of the town, but I remember riding right down the middle of the town, you know, one stoplight at Maine and First, and lots of brick buildings, two-story brick buildings with banks and grocery stores and mercantile stores and things like that. Um, and it was very different from the, you know, the Pueblo, uh, New Mexico, Adobe, Viga architecture that I had uh, was so familiar with. So it was different from the time you read, uh, wrote through it. And that area of Texas is a little bit flatter. You, you're not in central Texas. Central Texas is what they call the hill country. Mm. But out there in East Texas, it's pretty West. flat. I'm sorry, West Texas. It's uh, pretty flat. And um, so you get to see a lot of stuff while you're riding. You know, you've got a lot of open space in front of you. Mm -hmm. uh, drivers drove quickly, mostly pickup trucks that FM. There are two kinds of road uh, in Texas. One is uh, farm to market and the other is farm to ranch, mm -hmm. FR and FM. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and then there oh and there is an RM ranched market. Those are the roads, and that's how they're uh, defined. And I suppose at some time in Texas's highway history, they had some meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a, a, a state road. It was still 66. Uh, but in Texas, it was a state road as opposed to U.S. 66, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you felt like you had left New Mexico, I guess is the best way to describe it. Now, my New Mexico was the area that was from Santa Fe north to Taos and, and Abiquiu. So my New Mexico was very limited to that one area that is kind of traditional, culturally speaking, New Mexico. I, I entered a place in Texas that has its own that Western Texas culture. Uh, because once you get, I lived for a while when I was at Fort Hood, I lived in Florence, Texas, which is central Texas, the hill country. And that's even a little bit more different. You go to Dallas and it's Texas, but it's a little bit different and, and um, more urban. More definitely more urban and more business, more mm-hmm. formal, lots of type A's, that kind of thing. Um, but this was comfortable, even though it was kind of a, a jump in cultures, it was comfortable because it wasn't intimidating. Mm-hmm. You know, not that it was friendly, it wasn't supposed to be more or less friendly, it just wasn't intimidating. Mm-hmm. I, I was never, <clears throat> although stuff ran through my head, it was just the nature of Miguel's head, the stuff runs through his head. It's always a mm-hmm. big adventure and the next big thing, explosive in a shootout, you know, <laughs> uh, like any kid that age. But uh, it wasn't, uh, I didn't feel threatened by, there was no feeling of, uh, there was no feeling of uh, uh, being threatened. And it seemed that the longer I observed it, and that's kind of what it turned into me for me. Once, once I had the encounter with the biker gang, uh, the, my perception of how my interactions with other people would have to change uh, and move away from the more defensive into the more open to possibilities. And by this time, I had turned myself into an observer of uh, the human thing, right? Up until he said, let's go and leave your bike here. And then well, and it was, well, I got so defensive because I, all I could envision was leaving my bike on the side of the road in a place that I wasn't there with New Mexico plates. Yeah. I knew I would never see that bike again. Somebody yeah. would just tie it up to their truck and drag it behind them or whatever they needed to do. And so I was glad he would, he at least had a considered that somebody should come and pick it up and B that we would wait because it took, more than one attempt at convincing him, you know, by the time the the first part of it was get in the car, we're going a little bit of convincing went, okay, well get in the car. I've got a truck coming for it. Then a little bit more convincing was, okay, got a car. I got a truck coming for it. Let's wait until they come and get it. So the title, uh, the thumbnail I used is challenged because he challenged you to say, you know, to stop you from, where you were going mm-hmm. and to really think about, are you sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of that challenge. And then you challenged him by saying, you know, I'm not leaving my bike mm-hmm. and you know, this is serious, you know, Toby. And I'm not leaving person. this bike right. because this is my responsibility. And he got that. Mm-hmm. And I got, uh, I wasn't as quiet. I'm not a loud speaker anyway, 
But this was a point where I had to make myself heard. And the Christian brothers used to say, make sure you're heard, right? Don't You don't have to scream, but you do have to make sure you're heard. And so I was serious, and the tone of my voice changed. The tone and volume of my voice changed. And he, he heard me. He heard that. And he could have interpreted it in a variety of ways. He's angry or he's feeling uh, anxious or he's expressing his ang ang uh, anguish at that point, but he heard it. And I think he, he thought to himself, whoa, okay, let me, let me see what I can do here. Uh, because after all, he's a father and um, I'm the same age as his son. So what, what would he have done if his son expressed that kind of concern in a change of tone and volume to him? He would have done something different. He, wouldn't, he, would, he didn't seem to me like the kind of guy that would uh, tell his son to go to hell. You know, no. he would listen to him and then he would make a decision about whether this was the right thing to do or not. I mean, he seemed, he seemed that kind of pragmatic. And the other thing it, that I learned as I was... Uh, as uh, I was experiencing this a, a day at a right at a time, you know, was that uh, you ultimately not everyone has the same education as you expect you've had at this point, which was a pretty good education. But it didn't seem to make any difference because you're working, it's you're you're engaging with one another at a, such a fundamental level that where your education is really doesn't make a lot of difference. You only hope that their fundamental level of being a deputy sheriff is wise and open enough to consider your fundamental level, which is a 15-year-old who's on his first big adventure and, and isn't going to tolerate being stopped by anyone, you know, um, which sounds kind of spoiled when you say it. But uh, I think that was the interesting thing to, to me. And, and again, these were observations that I was acquiring along the way. There was not, not that I'm a scientist in any stretch, by any stretch of the imagination at that age, but I was observing these things and I could observe him and how his, he was behaving and how it was different from say uncle Carlos or the, or the biker gang and how his, his behavior was different from uh, Maybell Jackson. You could tell Maybell Jackson was the kind of person that if uh, they found a homeless person and they brought him into jail, she would have bought him food, clothes, and blankets, and, and a nice backpack to send him on his way. That was that's struck me, right? She was just that kind of person, and and so you learn, uh, or you it reinforces the idea that uh, you have to wait before you make a decision about someone to see what their behavior is like. Uh, before you start reacting to a behavior that may, they may never exhibit, he was never mean. He was he was angry in kind of a fatherly way, like your father would get mad at you. What the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> you know, where where do you think you're going? <laughs> and so it, that was that was the level of anger that he was expressing, and I could see that. I, I could see that he wasn't, uh, not that he was keeping himself from being angry, but he was not, he was exhibiting the anger in a way that was an indication of what he was feeling rather than, rather than just the pure raw anger, because sometimes anger is expressed in ways that are, that are in other of what you're feeling. You maybe feel uh, anxiety uh, and, and expressed, your result is expressed in anger. Um, so he was, 
he was very level-headed. And that gave me the confidence to have a conversation with him, an open conversation with him, for me to be honest with him. Now, there, there's the, the lie, you know, lie told often enough and loud enough becomes the truth. Well, the lie that told often enough in this whole case was, it's okay with my mom, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is an exaggeration at, at a minimum and a lie because you can she didn't even know about she it. didn't know about <laughs> it so it has to be okay right it's still a lie yeah it's a it's a lie as the catholics say by omission yeah and um and uh it was getting progressively more the truth as i went on right and uh, there was a point at which it towards the end i actually believed it she doesn't care mm. right she's okay with this mm -hmm. And she wasn't, none of it. Mm -hmm. And it had created anxiety to her. And that's a good example of when she got anxious, she expresses that ang anxiety in anger, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of ways to express that kind of anxiety, including, boy, am I sure glad to have my son back. Mm -hmm. That wasn't her approach. He expressed <laughs> it in anger, and I had to deal with that then. Yeah. But by that time, I was I was ready for it. Mm -hmm. I knew, kind of knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I was just grateful at that point. I was just grateful the motorcycle made its way back. And that's mm -hmm. all I really cared oh, about. Give that away. Oh, okay. So um, challenged. And <clears throat> I, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes we are challenged in our lives. I'm being challenged right now, for instance. And we feel like giving up. And other times... You know, you've just, this is my course. Nothing's going to make me stray off my course. I don't care if the sheriff stops me. I don't care if I fall off my bike and get picked up by motorcycle riders and sent down the road. I'm doing this thing come hell or high water. Um, what do you think it was that kept you going to your final goal and you never even considered turning around? Uh, destiny. Destiny always operates in your favor. And when when an impediment comes along to keep you from your destiny, then it's fate, and you can deal with that at that time. But my sense is that through my entire life, and through most of our lives, maybe we don't view it that way, I always feel like once you've set a direction, what keeps what started you on that direction and what keeps you going on that direction is destiny. It is your destiny to see new Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And the fates are going to operate along with you to help you to get there. Occasionally, there's going to be a counter fate. Well, you're going to stop by a sheriff and he doesn't like this idea. What's he going to do? Is he going to send you back to New Mexico or put you on a train or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I always felt it was destiny and destiny kept me going. Destiny and I were moving in the same direction until I was put on a train to return home. And by that time, a, that particular adventure, the, the, the destined adventure had been completed. And the moment I was put on a train, you discover you're on another form of destiny. Destiny is again, working in your favor. So uh, is there bad, again, is all destiny good? Uh, I don't know. It's just destiny, and it's always felt like anything that I've ever accomplished in my life has been driven by that. Um, volunteering for military service, volunteering to go to Vietnam, volunteering for the assignments that I did, I 
I met people in Vietnam who, after a couple of beers, would tell you they didn't feel like they were ever going to get home. And nine out of ten of those didn't. It was that that was their destiny. Mm. My destiny was to come home, and I believed that. I never believed there was any way I was not going to come home because that's what my adventure destiny was for me. And so a lot of my life has been based on that. I'm not, you know, as well as I do, that I'm not a believer in certain in certain things. I don't debate the existence of a supreme being. But I do believe you have control over your destiny. And that the only thing that can interrupt that particular road to whatever your destiny is, whether it is adventurous or not. I don't think of my, I don't think of my, um, road in life right now is an adventurous one. And I felt like my destiny was to, uh, was to spend the rest of my life enjoying my little house here in New Mexico. And one day you walked in and you said, we're going to uh, live in South Carolina, whatever the fates were. And you could probably list them very carefully more than I can, but the fates drove you to change my destiny question is, how do I feel about that? (laughs) Ryan, Mm -hmm. I I have to ask myself, how does that line up with my destiny? I'm starting to see myself in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of adventure. It's a different destiny for me at that point. And the only thing that can come come in uh, front of that, can stop that, can keep me from achieving that destiny is whether or not I live long enough. (laughs) <laughs> and I have no reason to think that I'm not. So if, you know, live long and prosper, right? If you believe in yourself that uh, you've been granted the gift of a long life, uh, then why not pursue your destiny? And all of us have a destiny. I don't think any destiny... Oh, well, I shouldn't say any. I, I, I think everyone's destiny is associated with some sort of adventure that causes new experience and as a result, new learning. And the moment that stops, then you can get yourself a lazy boy lounger and a big screen TV and watch YouTube videos. And I'm, I'm not there yet. And over the past... You know, Pee Wee Herman died a couple of days ago. He died. Mm-hmm. He died at an age four years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Irish singer—I forgot her name, and I shouldn't have. Uh, Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. She died at fifty-six. She was sixteen years younger than me, or eighteen years younger than me. And so you think to yourself, well, Kevin died at sixty-one. At age sixty-one. You know, 15 years younger than me in your age. And so you have to ask yourself, well, that's them. Yeah. And that's their story. That's their story. What's your story? And uh, how long are you going to live that story rather than not living it? Because the moment you don't pursue your destiny and you sit in that lazy boy lounger and watch TV and, I don't know, smoke cigarettes. (laughs) We talked about that. We said, 
maybe we should just give everything up, all the YouTube channels, all this work, and why are we doing this? And let's just relax and enjoy our retirement, play with kids. And it sounds really good, but then we get that itch. It's like, oh, hey, there's an idea. I was texting with a friend today, and I told him, hey, I sold my truck, uh, took it to CarMax, and I didn't think they were going to want it. And, you know, they came through on the deal and they, I sold the truck, 18 year old truck, you know, uh -huh. and I was thrilled because I got rid of it, got some money out of it. Didn't have to deal with it anymore. Uh -huh. Thrilled. And he's like, gosh, you should do a YouTube channel about your journey from, you know, becoming a widow and uh -huh. uh, all the things you're going through and how you're moving across the country and all this. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's what I need. One more thing to do. Well, it, it, it is in the sense you've you've talked to me about the experience that you've had uh, with your invitation to join a support group of widows and widowers hosted by the uh, hospice by, group. by yeah. hospice group. In fact, I'm uh, going to another one tomorrow. And and attending it <laughs> yeah. and realizing that your approach to surviving the death of your husband is very different from the people who are in this group surviving the deaths of their husbands and and wives. And uh, I think you do have a different approach. And then when people ask me, how are you doing? I tell them she's doing great. Yeah, until I get you know, an obstacle. Right. Because I wasn't like Miguel, uh, you know, heading towards my destiny, eyes on the prize all the uh -huh. time. I get waylaid uh -huh. when the stuff comes up. Like yesterday, tried to sell the car to truck to Carvana. And they're like, nope, don't want it. After they showed up and checked it out. It was like, nobody wants my truck. Boo. Uh, so I was very upset, you know, and I let that really rattle me. Mm -hmm. um, and just little things like that can rattle me. And I go to my house and then look around and all the work that still needs to be done before I can clean it out and, and move on and sell it with my, you know, move on with my life. There's, you know, and I, it's like, this is holding me back and I get overwhelmed and I can't always keep my eyes on the prize. Mm -hmm. That's why I need you in my life to, you know, help me keep trudging towards my destiny <laughs> what we're and, supposed to be doing yeah and and i think uh the easy part for me perhaps is because i've had so many losses in my life uh to me uh, none of them affected my ability to pursue my destiny did did they sadden me yes but they were never the kinds of obstacles now i i haven't lost a child yeah. Uh, I've never lost a spouse, and and I, I don't even know how I'd respond to that, even though I've been divorced from them for decades. Um, but uh, it's never kept me from just kind of moving forward with whatever I wanted. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I, I feel like, to me, I I was ready for the passing. I was ready for him not to be in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't ready for all these you know, now you got to fix this. Now you got to work on that. Now you got to do that. It's just, and, and it just piles up. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, and I don't want to make any more decisions, you know, and, and it gets to be a lot. Well, part of it was the fact that uh, Kevin was very good at, at insulating you from uh, those no, kinds we, of know, things. We complimented each other. He took no, no, care no. of some things uh, and uh, I took care of the others. And I understand that completely. 
but how many times did you make the mortgage payment or pay them? That was yeah. his thing, right? Yeah. And uh, so now you're in a stage where uh, you have to sell the truck. Eventually, you're going to have to sell the car. Eventually, you're going to have to empty the house. Eventually, you're going to have to sell the house. And that's not easy for anyone. These are all new things I've never yeah. had to. Right. He's always taking care before. of that. Right. Yeah. And the benefit is that your best friend here has always done all of that. Yeah. So none of it to me is like, oh, you didn't sell the truck. Well, let's go here and sell the truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because I was surprised. The the Carvana lady, when she came out, was surprised me with that little electronic device that she yeah. plugged in. And I thought, oh, that I wonder what that's going to do to us. Mm. And then I realized. Mm. And and she was so, uh, you know, she was checking out the car. We went over standing and she says, can't buy this car. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, what's the matter? She said, here's all the engine indicator, <laughs> you know, like had a list there on her little iPad. And, and I, I thought, was just like. Well, fine. We got other places we can go. <laughs> you know, I didn't want her to, you know, I didn't want to break down and cry or anything. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I was like, you know, uh, you know, they offered $50 more than CarMax. That's why I went with them. And mm -hmm. they would come and, to the house. And, and that makes it perfect up. sense. So I thought, hey, let's do it that way. Let's make yeah. it easy. No, that didn't work out. Yeah. But, but what did we do today? We went to CarMax. And what happened? And they gave me a check. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like Carmex. Go Carmex. <laughs> they do have the biggest uh, stock, lock, lot full of vehicles. I don't know how this applies to a gypsy's kids. Used but cars, yeah. Yeah, of vehicles. I mean, they, and they have a broad selection from, you know, uh, performance vehicles to pickup trucks to um, high-end Mercedes Benzes, Porsches, Jaguars, and Bentleys. Like you said, you saw a um, Lamborghini, a, Lamb a Lamborghini, Lamborghini, and a Ferrari, and several Alfa Romeos, which aren't even made anymore. They stopped making them two years ago, and they've become collector cars. The mm -hmm. uh, Spider, the one twenty four Spider. Um, there was some Miatas. There was a couple of Corvettes. Mm -hmm. There was uh, some high performance ve vehicles like Mustangs and Challengers, and you know those kinds that. You're not going to find on a on a normal lot, and they were all relatively no, no low mileage. the The vet was twenty two k. That's nothing on a vet. The Porsche was seven thousand miles. They had full electric cars, mm -hmm. and you get the sense these are cars that people got into and went like, "Oh, I can't afford this." <laughs> you know, what was I thinking? Or they that, lost their job, or something. Or, or something happened that yeah. you couldn't afford to pay off your Bentley. Yeah. Um, and they were all in very good condition. I was very impressed. Mm. I'm, not that I'd buy, I don't, I'm not a big fan of buying used cars. Mm. Uh, but uh, I was. But if it's a collector's item like yeah, that. Yeah, it was something like that. And you had a little spare money and you wanted another Corvette. Yeah, yeah. you'd go in, in there, buy it. Or the, I'd love to have one of those uh, Fiat 124s. They were uh, beautiful, as you know, Italian. And by this time, we're, <laughs> we're just sorry. It took a hard right. <laughs> Let's go. Hard right off that one. We can talk about the Fiat 124 and my love for Italian cars later. Yeah. So if you are headed towards your destiny and you're waylaid by challenges and obstacles, get your bestie in there to help you. And that's something that I think you've got to look for in somebody you're going to, you know, have as a partner in your life is somebody who can compliment you by taking care of things that you don't know how to take care of mm -hmm. or who is willing to learn it with you. Uh, well, let me get on the phone and find out about that. And 
we'll do that for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll ask me questions. I'll say, I'm not Siri. Um, <laughs> I'll ask him questions. He'll go, let me look it up. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you shouldn't, if you can have a, a number of best friends, a number of friends, but your bestie should be the one that when you uh, start crying and feeling sorry for yourself, doesn't join you in crying, feeling sorry for you. That helps right? you get, Right. Through it and past it. And- yeah. That doesn't mean that you can't have friends that or that, you know, when you do need that kind of thing, I just need to cry in my beer. Uh, you have somebody like that. What you want yeah. in your you best. You got to process those feelings. Yeah. Yeah. What you want in your bestie is someone who's going to listen to you, uh, wait while you work it out in your own mind and then suggest an alternative, a solution, whether it's alternative or not. And, and, and look help out for and, your best interest. Yeah. That's why you call them besties. They're looking out for your bestie interest. <laughs> like going to bestie breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave Toby a ride to get his uh, security system installed in his truck, and then he took me to bestie breakfast. Yeah, bestie breakfast afterwards. Yeah, we had a good week. It was hard, but it was good. It's gonna get. Uh, it's gonna get progressively easier. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to rush. And the important thing is we don't have to rush. We don't have to be any place. Yeah, we no are retired. Yeah. Right. But one of the benefits of being retired is you don't have to be anywhere. Yeah. The only deadline I have is get my taxes done by April 15th. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly <laughs> that's it. it. And you're going to have, and you're going to have somebody do that for you. So just yeah. keep all your receipts. All right. Well, that's, I think, enough of that for Chapter 15. Let let me summarize. The chapter was entitled Challenged. The summary of the chapter is every one of us has a destiny. We choose our destiny. Along the way, fate will interrupt your uh, journey to that destiny. Figure out what you need to do with the fates and then continue to your destiny. All right. And on that note, we will see you again next time for Chapter 16. And we hope that uh, you're getting a lot out of these. And please send us either an email or... um, Make a comment. Make a comment. And Toby didn't put the thing up today, but you can email us. Actually, I did. I took it it down. Oh, at support at agkmedia.studio. Or you can send us a story at stories.agkmedia.studio. I, I did put it up, and we were watching Stories it. Stories at agkmedia.studio. That's, and, that's what I meant. And you you were doing some kind of close, and I thought, okay, well, let me get rid of this so I don't forget it. Oh, yeah. And then we went off into Never Never Line. That's all right. That's all right. Went there it is. The... It's, it's, it's there. It's also in the description. So please use it and uh, get in touch with us. We'd love to know your story. Uh, I'm done. I got nothing for you. <laughs> Say goodbye. I'm just holding on. Say goodbye, got... Grace. All right. Goodbye, Gracie. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time. Keep telling your story because your story matters.